If you were to draw a line from the very tip, the bow of a ship, and continue drawing that line for hundreds of miles, and if that ship were to move along that line and hold to that course for hundreds or even thousands of miles, eventually it will end up in the place to which it is pointing. Now, if the ship deviates, even only a tiny degree, one way or the other, even though it's hardly distinguishable, like it seems like it's heading for the right intended destination, but in reality, if the heading is off by even only one degree, after sailing just 100 yards, that ship will be off by 5.2 feet. Not huge, but noticeable. Yes, I like math. After a while, after a mile, you'll be off by 92.2 feet. One degree is starting to make a difference. You're missing the dock now. If you were to travel from Bar Harbor to New York City, you'd be off your target by about five miles. If you were to travel, let's say you could sail from Bar Harbor to Liverpool, England in a straight line, which you can't, but let's just say you could, okay? There's a peninsula there called Nova Scotia, which we've heard a lot about this weekend, but uh, let's say you could sail in a straight line from Bar Harbor to Liverpool, England, and you're off by one degree, you would miss your port by more than 50 miles. If you were to somehow travel in a straight line around the globe, for those of you who are not flat earthers, just hang with me here. So if you were to, if you were to travel around the globe, leaving from right here, and your course is off by one degree, by the time you came all the way around, you would miss your, uh, your destination by a considerable amount. You'd, if you're off to the south, you'd end up in Washington, D.C. If you're off to the north, you'd end up in Labrador City, Labrador. You have to look that one up, perhaps. If you were to travel to the nearest star, well, off by one degree, you'd be off course by 440 billion miles. That's 120 times the distance from Earth to Pluto, or 4,750 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So my point is, over time, a mere one degree error in course makes a huge difference. A simple one degree deviation doesn't seem like a big deal, but day after day, year after year, over time, you will arrive at a completely different destination than you originally planned. So, the question I want to address this morning, and for the next two or three messages, is how does humanity get back on course? How do we reset our path and find our way again? So let's just get this out of the way. It starts with us. Like we need to get back individually to who we are created to be. We need to rediscover and return to the original design for who God made us to be and to become. And when that happens, something comes alive in us, something wakes up, something that can join with the people around us to do incredible, brave, exciting, kind, generous things, the kinds of things that a world in pain and uncertainty needs. So this morning and for a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about being human. But more than that, we're going to turn the word human into a verb, and we're going to talk about how to human. How to human. What does that look like? The true you, the one we want to uncover and maybe rediscover, was around long before the world around you had any influence over your opinions on anything. Like, that version of you existed before that scary or traumatic thing happened to you. The original version of ourselves is what we want to bring back to the surface. 
and, and life and the world we live in has a way of knocking us off course. Somehow, like, we become convinced that we need to pretend, we need to become something or someone other than the person God created us to be, and even if the shift is subtle and, and, and small, it, it changes our course by even a few degrees, and it's significant. So over the last few years, by the way, I've been, I've been waiting for about probably three, four years to kind of pull all these thoughts together, and I feel like this is where I am for the moment. Because over the last few years, many of us have become overcome by fear and trauma and stress and division. And I think we simply forgot who we are. Like we forgot how to be. So how do we get our bearings? How do we correct our course? This might sound like self-help this morning or a live your best life kind of thing. It's more than that. Uh, We're never going to self-help our way back to restoring our best humanity, but we need to recognize like who we are, who God created us to be so that we can turn around and love and serve other people. So I want to talk about a few ways this morning to correct our course and human the way God intended for us to human. So today we're going to talk about how to human. We're going to talk specifically this morning about being human. So number one, I just want to say this, be you. Be you. There isn't a greater example of humanity than Jesus. His life leads us to the path that we were originally designed to be on. And I think it's important to see how Jesus' identity as a Jewish man living under Roman occupation in first century Palestine affected everything he did. I think it's easy for us to lose sight of that in modern discussions of who Jesus was. But Jesus knew who he was. He didn't run from his ethnic identity. He, he didn't run from the contemporary reality that he was born into, like into his, in his family, in his local economy, in the regional politics, in the seemingly insignificant location in a land occupied by a ruthless superpower. And I think it's important for us to know where we come from, to understand what has shaped our story, to know who we are before we can start to figure out where we are going. So I wonder, here's a question, because we're just going to get into it. I wonder what it is about yourself and about your story, about what has made you who you are right now as a human. What is it that you aren't likely to talk about freely? That stuff that you don't want most people to know. Maybe stuff that you've been running from for a long time. And it's not even necessarily because it'll hold you back, but because you think someone is going to think less of you. I think it's important for all of us to find that piece of who we are, the piece that we might want to keep hidden, and lay claim to it, like own it, like lean all the way in. This is a really important part of being human. So I wonder, is there something about your story that you would avoid sharing with others because you believe that life would be easier without that part of your story being true? right? And if you think that, I get it, like that's all right, but you don't, like, you don't have to share every facet of who you are with the whole world in order to be a healthy person. But I would say that it's vital for you to at least know and own your story inside and out because here's why. Both the beautiful parts and the ugly parts of your story are relevant. Like we all have parts of us that need to come alive. You probably have parts of you that you have hidden and shamed for far too long. 
And to that, I would say the first step in being a whole healthy person, being fully human, is to step into the fullness of who you are. As a follower of Jesus, I've spent decades studying his life and I've spent decades trying, just trying to be a little bit more like him. And so, like some, I don't know about you, but many times I overcomplicate what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Can you identify with that? I'm not saying I don't think that it's important to dive into, I don't know, the depths of Greek text, if that's your thing, of the New Testament, like to better understand who he was and what he wants for us. I'm grateful for smart people out there and all the access we have to their work, right, to help me like have a clear understanding of Jesus and the gospel. But I'm telling you, like since we're talking about keeping it simple, it's one thing that Jesus did exceptionally well. He kept it simple. For Jesus, it was as simple as loving God and loving people. Love God and love people. So I guess if this is an outline, number two, be love. Love God and love people. We often talk about how the latter is an, ex- is an expression of the former, that our love for others is an expression of our love for God. But it's also true that the former accelerates the latter. Like, I don't, think, I don't think you need to necessarily love God in order to love people, but I do know that if you love God, if you live in a love relationship with God, it allows you to love people in unexpected and sometimes seemingly impossible ways. But like God's love is just that. It's impossible, right? It is humanly impossible to love like God does without God himself injecting his love into us and letting that flow out of us. And Jesus lived this. He simply loved. Now, I'm not saying that loving someone can't get complicated, there are certainly situations that we come across in our daily like, attempt to love others that can be defined as complicated. But the beginning of love, the human decision to make someone feel loved, that's not that complicated. Like, the thing that may feel a little more complicated is loving those people who you absolutely don't feel like loving. Don't look at anybody. But that's exactly what being human requires of us. Jesus, in his humanity, taught us how to love in simple ways. In John 15 and verse 12, he said it really simply. He says, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. And then when we, when we step back and we see how simply he did this, like he went to the marginalized and he went to the distressed and he went to the struggling, to everyone who, that he interacted with, he showed them that they are worthy of love. And if you wonder if we ever really get into theology here on Sunday mornings, well, if theology is the study of who, what God is like and who God is, like, here's some theology for you. This is what God is like. Jesus shows us who God is and what God is like and what God does and would do. And what God would do is to communicate to every one of us, and that includes you, that you are worthy of love. And if we're going to lean into this image of God in us, then we'll take this same message that you're worthy of love and spread it to everyone in our lives. If being human as we were intended and created to be is to reflect the image of God, then this is what it is to be fully human. God is love. But hey, 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 here's something. We can be love too. So that all sounds good so far. Let's talk about what this could look like. Let's talk about compassion. Be compassion. 
Compassion, uh, I like this definition I found a couple weeks ago, um, sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. It's a good one. Sympathetic pity or concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. So here's the thing about concern. Like concern is useless. It serves no point except to make us feel good about ourselves unless we actually do something. Like do something about the sufferings or misfortunes of others. So be love and be compassion. Do you remember, do you remember the second week of March in 2020? How do you remember that? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Those first few days of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was so early, we weren't even calling it COVID-19 yet. We just were calling it a coronavirus. Remember uh, the 15 days to flatten the curve. Remember that? We were just going to hunker down for a couple weeks. We'd get, and then we'd just get on with our lives. Like 15 days, really, but okay, we'll do what we got to do, and then we're going to get on with our lives. Remember the kind of unity among humans that seemed to be a common reaction from everyone around us. Remember, we're all in this together. Remember that? Not, you don't remember that quite as well. It's kind of my point. Remember those videos of people playing music from their balconies in cities all around the world? Remember that? Only lasted a couple weeks, but it happened. It was there. It's still there. But see, to be honest, it, it, it's easy to get lazy at doing this human thing when things are going well for us when things are not in a downward spiral. It's easy to give money to somebody with less when you are flush with cash. It's easy to pray for someone who is sick when you are healthy. It's easy to celebrate a friend getting pregnant when you've had successful pregnancies, right? It's just easier to walk the talk of being human when things are going well. But I'm sure you've experienced this too. Some of the purest humans I have ever come across were in seasons of life that most would consider, I certainly would consider, difficult. Like, why is that? Like, why would I, and why would I use the word pure to describe them? Well, it's because they don't have anything to decorate it or bedazzle it with. They, they don't have an Instagram life. Whenever you see that, like, humanity that moves you coming from someone in a situation like that, you know it is pure. Like, I've found this every time we've traveled to Guatemala on a mission trip. And if you've had similar experiences, you know what I'm talking about. Where the kind of resources that they have available to them is a drop in the bucket compared to what we have access to in America. Like, when they've invited us into their homes with their chickens and a fire smoldering in the middle of their house, and I use that term loosely, and we realize, looking around, that there's hardly any natural light there's no indoor plumbing, there's no cook stove, there's no refrigerator, and we can clearly see that they are living, listen, with a clear and strong sense of family and humanity that puts us to shame, caring for one another just to survive. And, and I'm not saying we can't get to the essence of our, our humanity in our first world developed nation, but I'm just saying it's easy to lose our grip on what it means to be human in the purest sense when everything's going well for us. So do you remember the days at the beginning of COVID when most of us didn't even know anyone who tested positive? Remember that? 
We thought we'd suffer through these 15 days, we'd starve the virus, enjoy a little downtime maybe, everything would be back to normal in a couple of weeks and we'll be back together for Easter because we were like pandemic rookies, we had no idea. All we knew to do at the time, this is, this is kind of where I'm driving this, all we knew to do was to hope for each other. Remember that? Way, way back, three and a half years ago, when we hoped the best for other people, despite what anyone believed? Because here's the thing. The debate, gosh, the debates around masks and social distancing and vaccines hadn't even started yet. Oh, you remember those days? Oh, yeah. Uh, we were so innocent. The, and the operatives on the both sides of the political aisle hadn't hijacked the situation to score political points. Remember that? So we hadn't landed on either side of an issue or another either. We just landed on hope, like hope for a good outcome, hope for each other, like hoping, like as a verb, rooting for each other. We just wanted people to survive and thrive. And it baffled me, it still baffles me, how quickly we forget and we move on from that kind of compassion. Compassion that hopes the best for people, like all people. Whether we agree with you or not on whatever, whether we believe the same or worship the same, doesn't matter. But the compassion we had for one another in the early days of that experience didn't last long, did it? Like even as it was really just starting to ramp up, like we, I mean, as a society, as consumers of curated news media, as church-going, self-proclaimed Christians, we seemed to lose our ability to find the compassion deep within us because, listen, we allowed it to get buried by our inability to process the avalanche of everyone else's opinions about everything and about things where we had no prior knowledge or experience. So hear me out. I'm not saying that opinions are bad that you shouldn't have opinions on a variety of things, because I've got a few. But it seems that in the last few years, and this was just exacerbated by the pandemic and all the talking heads on cable news and YouTube, God help us, and social media, but, but it seems like, like we've, we've, we've set this, this faulty expectation that our compassion should only be doled out and limited to people who believe the same way we do. I contend that the exact opposite is true when it comes to compassion. I think it's only half human to find compassion for only those who think and believe and see the world the way that we do. I think the truest form of compassion is found outside the walls of our various bubbles of familiarity and similarity. And I had that in bold text, which means I have to repeat that. The truest form of compassion is found outside the walls of our various bubbles of familiarity and similarity. Why do I say that? Because that's exactly how Jesus did compassion. When I think about compassion, and I think about Jesus and the example he lived out, and I think about his teaching, and especially like his parable about, let's talk about the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. In telling that story, Jesus lays out this scenario, and he talks about a man who had been attacked by robbers and left on the side of the road. And he talks about two religious leaders who came by, and these people would have been very respected in that culture. And when they saw the injured man, they actually crossed the road so they could pass by on the other side. 
But then, and again, when we understand the context, when we understand the deeply established prejudices of his audience, it changes, it intensifies the meaning of the story. Luke 10, 33, Jesus says, a Samaritan came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And I'm guessing you're familiar with the story. It's one of Jesus' most familiar parables. He approached the man, he bandaged and dressed his wounds, he lifted the man onto his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him, and took care of the bill. So for this man, the Samaritan man, to stop and render this kind of help to a Jew was unheard of. Like, Jesus probably could have stopped at verse 33 where he said that the Samaritan man just had pity on the injured man, and that would have been enough for his audience. Like, the idea that a Samaritan would have pity on a Jew revealed on a side of the Samaritan people that the Jews wouldn't have even acknowledged existed. Like, they were subhuman in their eyes. Like, this ability to experience compassion and pity that moved them to action. Jesus is presenting the Samaritan as fully and purely human. And for his audience, this is a new thing. I don't know about you, but I learned some stuff from the spring of 2020 to the fall, I would say, of the next year uh, at, the, at the height of COVID in the United States. I learned some stuff about human behavior. I learned some stuff about myself. I hope you learned some stuff about me too, but uh, I mean about yourself. As a... And as a leader of an organization where we say we're like we are about people, we're built around people, like the value of people, I found myself often walking in a no man's land while people around me were leaning pretty heavily into their opinions about all the lightning rod issues of the pandemic. I mean, to the point that some people refused to acknowledge it as a pandemic, they wouldn't use the word. And when I've, I've really processed this, and I hope you have too. Otherwise, it's been a wasted experience. For me, the greatest lesson I've taken away, but there are many people who are in need of our compassion just on the other side of our opinions. Yeah, right. We're going to pause right there and let you write that one down. Take a picture of it, whatever you got to do. There are people in need of our compassion just on the other side of our opinions. Be compassion. There's a story Jesus tells another parable. In Matthew 18, he says, uh, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. So if you find yourself wondering what compassion looks like, Compassion looks like going after the one. So in your life, wherever you do life, take notice. Who's lost? Who's outside of their flock? Who's left out? Who's been forgotten? Who's vulnerable, neglected, overlooked? and go after them. Go to them. Go find them wherever they are and show them. Make sure they know they are loved. You may need to let them know that you will love them if they decide to come back to the flock and hang with you and that you'll love them just as much if they don't come back at all. Because the point of going after the one is to show true compassion, 
to practice compassion, to be purely human. And I think it's pretty obvious to all of us that that kind of compassion has been missing in our world for a while. It's been hit and miss in the church for a while too. And I think this is so powerful because, listen, your expression of compassion, like you acting on compassion, isn't even always about the other person on the receiving end of compassion from you. Sometimes it's just about you giving compassion so that you are reminded that you have it in you to give. Be compassion. All right, I think we're tracking well so far. If being compassion wasn't enough, though, I just want to just just go all in here. I believe that the human, that Jesus is calling us to be justice, be justice. So check this out. If we're going to truly be justice, we have to know, first of all, it's going to cost us something. So stay with me, because I know already you're, maybe some are starting to check out. It's like, oh, where is this going? The goal in learning how to human is to be like the ultimate human, the one who came to show us the Father, and in showing us the Father, in showing us the heart of our Creator, He showed us how to human. And being fully human is going to require that we embody justice. You can't get around that. Like Jesus and justice go together. So let's take a minute and unpack the justice side of Jesus' humanity. So I think we do, we do a disservice to the gospel when we take the cultural and local context away from the ministry of Jesus. So like when you read the gospel accounts, uh, you understand, and, and we begin to understand also, in addition to that, the historical context, you discover that Jesus was very specific and very targeted about people groups that were oppressed and marginalized. Like over and over again, Jesus showed that yes, he's working for justice for not only his people, but for all people who ultimately like, are his people. He was not vague in his standing up for oppressed people groups. He spoke truth. He shattered the status quo. His agenda was, his agenda was bigger than, than politics or culture wars. It was human. Jesus was completely invested in the forgotten, the overlooked, the oppressed, all those people he wanted to see set free. So we can't escape this truth. So let's talk about what this means then. If it means to, that to human, we have to put action to our conviction, which begs the question, what's that going to look like? Well, I think it starts by asking, we've got to ask the question, who are the people today who are the outcasts by their own society? Who are these people? So I think it's going to start with that question. And what comes next? Well, I think that action that God calls you to, that's going to be between you and your God-given compassion. And that's it. So Tim Keller uh, said this about biblical justice, and I respect what he had to say. He said, biblical justice is characterized by radical generosity, universal equality, life-changing advocacy, and asymmetrical responsibility. Let's, Let's break these down. Radical generosity says that out of love of God and love of neighbor, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the benefit of the community. We can be on board with that. Universal equality says that biblical justice requires that every person be treated according to the same standards with the same respect regardless of class, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, or any other social category. Oh, you're like, okay, yeah. But th- listen, this biblical idea was, was like unique and revolutionary in world history. Like surrounding cultures and societies knew nothing of this idea that every human had equal dignity and worth. And then life-changing advocacy says that while we're to treat all equally, 
listen, and not show partiality to any, we are to have special concern for the poor, the weak, and the powerless. Is that a contradiction? No, and here's why. It doesn't mean that the powerful are less important as persons before God. They're equally as important, but they don't need anyone to speak up for them. But the poor and the oppressed and the powerless need us. And we see this all through the scripture. And then asymmetrical responsibility, I found this point really interesting, has to do with the balance of responsibility for injustices between corporate bodies like families and communities and churches and governments and other institutions, and the balance of responsibility between corporate bodies and individuals. So there is a shared responsibility for injustices, but the responsibilities are not often shared equally. And I'm not really going to get into that because it's really, really nuanced in it, but an important part of biblical justice. So if biblical justice is standing up for someone who can't stand up for themselves, even if you may not agree with everything they represent or believe, one thing that we can connect over is that they are human and so are you. So be justice. Then be wonder. Be wonder. During, uh, during those early weeks of the COVID pandemic, as those two weeks stretched into six weeks, that stretched into 12 weeks, that eventually just became like a new way of doing life, I had this sense that once we were on the other side of this experience, that we were going to look back and learn some things about ourselves. And I think historians and sociologists, you know, the social scientists, are going to study this period in human history for a long time. But one of the most obvious um, observations that for me that... that Especially, especially those first three or four weeks of the pandemic when, when so many people... Remember, uh, remember doing Easter service at home? Remember doing that? Watching online? Oh, your computer said you were online. I don't know what you were doing. I guess you just turned on the computer and walked away. But uh, we did Easter from our living rooms or whatever, right? Or from our den and, and just so weird. So those early days, some people had already pivoted to working from home. Kids were doing school from home. Remember that? That was a good time, right? You really looked forward to that. Uh, it's like the whole world went from 100 miles an hour to 3 miles an hour in one 24-hour period. Remember that? I mean, a screeching halt. I think those weeks hold a key to a flourishing humanity that we need to hold on to. And I'm talking about the slowing down, the lack of speed. Do you know the average human, <laughs> the average human moves at 3 miles per hour. Some of us are way above average, but that's another topic. There's absolutely nothing, just think about this though, there's nothing we engage in anymore that moves at that speed. From the way that we wake up, to the way that we eat our meals, to the way that we drive our cars, oh, come on, to the way that we go about our work, we are constantly moving at 100 miles an hour. And here's something, I don't think humans were created to move through life at that pace. But suddenly, out of nowhere, in the first days of spring 2020, our hand was forced and we had little choice but to slow down and be a little more human. <laughs> People were still on social media. That's all we had to do. But now they're posting pictures and video. Remember this? Remember the two things? Anybody remember what they were showing? Their sourdough starter. <laughs> I'm not making it up. And their new gardens. Remember that? Everybody was just like daily updates on Instagram. My sourdough started. I'm like, it looked like it did yesterday, but whatever. You know, thanks for sharing. And there's some more dirt in your garden. It's dirt again today. But 
and those who are planting gardens out of an irrational fear of what might come next, I mean, that's another story too, but uh, the bottom line is you can't rush a garden. It's like we rewound about 300 years in speed. And I don't mean to romanticize the experience, right? Because death was everywhere as well, if you remember that part. Like thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people were dying and loneliness became, like reached the pandemic level too. So don't get me wrong, it wasn't, it wasn't all good. Not much of it was good, but there was a ray of light. And I think that the ray of light for some of us was this growing piece of human flourishing that was slowing down. And everyone who studies human behavior and mental health agrees that we would all be better for slowing down. And the more months that go by, the more that experience becomes a distant memory. There are some things about it that we'll never forget, but it's apparent to me as I look around that we've already forgotten the value that was gained from being forced to simplify and slow down. We've already lost that. And I know for some of you, depending on your career field, it was anything but slowing down because your work required so much more from you. It was like all this endless pivoting and adjusting and shifting to new and unfamiliar methods and all of that. But, but like even then... So I acknowledge that, but even then there were parts of our lives that just stopped being a thing, which meant there was some margin somewhere, and if we chose to lean into it rather than just fill it with something else. And honestly, if, as you look back and you think back, if you pushed through those early weeks and months of the COVID pandemic and didn't figure out a way to lean into your newfound margin, I'm sorry you missed the opportunity. And I know from the very beginning, we all identified as essential workers, right, because the world cannot continue to spin on its axis without us doing our thing. We're all essential. Uh, there isn't anyone among us who is so essential to the survival of the human race that we couldn't find a way, especially in those extraordinary circumstances, to slow our pace, right? Maybe you didn't have it in your workplace, but there was, there was margin in other areas of our, of our lives, and I hope you sat in that. And even though that whole experience, in a way, seems like a long time ago, it wasn't. It really wasn't. But you, have you noticed I haven't seen any pictures of anyone's sourdough starter or anybody's new garden lately. Like how quickly we've forgotten the value of correcting our pace and how quickly we've filled that space with so much other stuff. Do you remember those videos where it seemed like the earth itself was taking a healing sigh? Here's what I mean. Like even in the midst of so much sickness and death everywhere you looked, there were signs of new and returning life. During those, early, those, those weeks of lockdown, especially in some major cities, more than 80% of cars that would normally be on the road never left their driveways, which led to blue skies that people living in some metro areas around the world had never seen. I know it's hard for us to get our brains around, but they'd never seen it. I love this story from, from Kampur, India, a city with some of the worst air pollution anywhere in the world. There was a video that, maybe you saw it, a video of the guy that had, had climbed onto his roof I tried to grab the video, but I couldn't capture it in a resolution that was good enough to show on the screen. But he climbed onto his roof, and he started screaming for his family to join him. And uh, he's, he's yelling frantically for his father to get up on the roof as fast as he can. This man had lived in the city his entire life, and for the first time ever, he was able to see not only blue skies, but, which was like a miracle in and of itself, but also the Himalayas in the distance. And he told a reporter, he says, I never knew the mountains were that close. So the question for us becomes, as the world continues to speed up, like in the last couple of years as we've returned to our pre-COVID pace of life and then some, are we supposed to just go along for the ride or should we have learned something from this collective human experience in 2020 and even maybe even lean into the lessons from that experience as much as we can? 
Like, here's the thing, and here's why this is important, how it relates to the idea of being fully human. Flourishing as a human, created in the image of God, like, if we use the word as a verb, and we talk about how to human, like, here's why it matters. Like, more and more, have you noticed, we are carrying around almost limitless access to practically infinite data in our pockets. Like, we know more than we ever have, but we've, at the same time, it seems like we've lost all semblance of awe and wonder. Like, think about this. For most of human history, we have known what we needed to know to survive and thrive. Not until 150 years ago did we even know what was happening as far as a few states away, much less around the globe. And even then, by the time we got the information, it was old news. Everything was so much smaller in scale until very recently. And now we've experienced this phenomenon that was unknown before our generation because now we can, oh, this is cool, like we can be enraged about everything that's happening everywhere in real time, right? We can know everything that we think we need to know in real time and we can form our opinions and we can get mad about stuff faster than we've ever been able to be upset before. And our, our imaginations have become stifled because we hardly need to use them anymore. Now, I'm not proposing that we go back to the 15th century before the printing press changed the reach of information. Not proposing that. Not suggesting we go back to the 18th century before the telegraph and the telephone. I'm not suggesting we go back to the 1980s, or Friday for that matter, before the internet. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but I'm not even suggesting we go back to 2006 before the smartphone. I'm just wondering, were we created for this kind of speed? Were we created for this kind of access to so much information at this sort of speed? Like, not that speed and information are inherently bad, especially when they can be used for so much good, but I think we should look at our lives and ask the question, as we look at our lives, what should slow down? Like, how could slowing down help my mental health? How could not Googling everything Increase my sense of awe and wonder. Again, we can learn so much from the life of Jesus. Jesus had a busy ministry. He crammed a lot into three and a half years. He was always going from one place to another, constantly on the move. And what speed was that at? About three miles an hour. That's if he had his good walking sandals on. Because that's how fast a human walks. And as Jesus traveled all over Galilee and Judea, performing miracles, teaching, training his apprentices, he did it at three miles an hour. There's no mention of him jumping on an express chariot to get to Galilee faster. Like other than that donkey ride into Jerusalem on the Sunday before he was crucified and some boat travel, which was kind of still at a very human pace, they walked everywhere. And I can only imagine, think about this, that that pace allowed Jesus to get the most out of his experience as a human. I mean, think about all the time for conversation while they were walking, all the talking between miracles and parables and teaching, that, that, that limitation that we see as a limitation, walking everywhere, not being able to multitask with technology, all of that afforded a natural way to be so human for deep connection. And I think Jesus made space for wonder. One time um, after his resurrection, I think he just decided to have some fun with a couple of his friends and to lean into this 
scenario that was only possible because of the supernatural, so I can't fully explain it. But it seems like it seems like it was the same day that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the others had gone to Jesus' tomb with spices that they had prepared to anoint his body and prepare it for burial, but they found no body. You probably know the story. Like, where was he? Apparently, he's walking down the road towards Emmaus, with two, and he meets up with two of his disciples. He catches up with these guys. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that the disciples, these followers of Jesus, were walking down the road, talking about everything that had taken place the last few days, which is a lot, like a lot to process. And I don't know how busy those roads were, so I don't know if anyone is around for what happened next, but Jesus walks up to them. I picture him kind of walking up from behind them and catching up with them, and he asks them what they're talking about. (laughs) This is the resurrected Jesus pretending to be clueless. Like, I love this. And they stop and they look at him and kind of exasperated. They're like, are you the only one who doesn't know what has happened here in the last few days? In Luke 24, verse 18, one of them asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. What things? He's playing them. And for whatever reason, they didn't recognize him. I don't know how that works. There's a lot about this part of the gospel story. I don't know how it works. It's the supernatural. Verse 16 says they were kept from recognizing him. So I don't know if resurrected Jesus was a shapeshifter or if this was like an undercover boss kind of disguise kind of scenario. I don't know. But I see, yeah, you're getting it. I love the wonder and the whimsy of this moment. The rest of the story goes on and leads to the disciples discovering who he is. But I want us just to kind of see this principle that being human means purposefully bringing wonder into our lives. How? Like, how do we do this? Uh, I don't. I don't know. That's for you to figure out for yourself. Maybe we could just start with the example of the story in Luke 24 and like go for a walk. Like literally go for a walk. Not a cardio workout, a walk at a leisurely pace. Slow down. Don't take your phone. No earbuds, no podcast, no music, no step tracker. If you're walking on a road, chances are you'll notice things that you've never noticed because you've only driven there before. Driven by at a speed not actually intended for humans. Sometimes we find awe and wonder when we simply slow down. I know some of you are bird watchers. How many of you are bird watchers? You're bird feeders at least. Okay. Yeah, you lure them to your back door with free food. There are scenarios where that would not be accepted. But from talking with some of you about that, I know it's a wonderful way for you to slow down, to simplify, to experience wonder every day right outside your window. Here's the thing about feeding birds. The truth is they don't need us to feed them. They have plenty of food in their natural habitat. We feed them for our own enjoyment, right? What's amazing to me is that all of these birds that show up at your feeders They're living right in your backyard, like right there in the canopy of the trees in your backyard. They're living right there on and around your property. And I kind of think they swoop down to your feeders as a treat. And it's as if they're looking in our windows like, look at me. Like I swing down here a few times whenever I want. I appreciate the nice treat, but I'm already taken care of. And I'm a freaking bird. (laughs) Like I don't have a worry in the world. Look at my life. I'm never in a hurry. I take my time to enjoy the sunrise. I'm just sitting out here most of the time. You don't even see me out here, but I see you. And I see you scurrying around all the time like everything's on you, like every care in the world is on your shoulders. Why are you worrying? I'm not worrying because I know God's going to take care of me. Don't you think God cares for you just as much? 
Now, I don't know if that's actually what goes on in their little pea brains, but I swear they're looking at you as you're looking at them, and there's something being communicated. Matthew 6, where Jesus said, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? So, yeah, knowledge is amazing and helpful in some situations, right? For sure, I love it. Like, I love to know things. And today, today the speed at which we can know things is, uh, is awesome. But sometimes it's simply too much, and it makes it harder for us to be fully human until we intentionally carve out some time and space and margin and pace to slow down and wonder. So as we explore what it is to be human... How to human. I think these first principles lead us to uh, some pretty straightforward and relatively easy, simple steps. Be you, be love, be compassion, be justice, be wonder. Be human. Listen to the words of this song.
Yeah.